Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. This is the Hash Podcast. Stay informed with the latest on Bitcoin, ETH, the Metaverse, Web3, and more with stories that matter to the crypto world, all on the Hash for your ears. You're listening to the Coindesk Podcast Network. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the Hash. I'm Jen Sinassi. we got Zach Seward, Adam B. Levine, and Will Foxley with that big smile in the bottom corner there. Thank you guys for joining us again. We love you. Zach, you got the first story. What do we got today? Yeah, end of an era. Pour one out for local Bitcoins. After a 10-year run, which is ages in crypto time, Bitcoin exchange local Bitcoins is calling it quits, citing current market conditions and the prolonged crypto winter. Really quite a sad development for longtime observers of the space. Local Bitcoins is one of those early peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplaces that really spoke to sort of the original ethos of Bitcoin, uh, less intermediated by big companies, more about that peer-to-peer trading uh, that was initially envisioned for the original cryptocurrency. Local Bitcoins, I think, saw a lot of uh, early growth in emerging markets. And now, unfortunately, they are closing shop. Really sad to see, but it becomes another victim of the latest crypto downturn. I'm going to toss this to Adam for his thoughts and a bit of historical perspective on this one. Yeah, uh, you you nailed it there. (laughs) So, I mean, local Bitcoins was kind of really, really important in the early ecosystem because there really wasn't any infrastructure. But the era of time where you can use a service like that and not have it be more risk than it's worth, I think is pretty much over. I think that, again, you get these kind of like frontier boomtown type of vibes from new technologies where it's like, we know that these solutions don't work very well. But it's the best that we have, and we're so motivated that we'll jump through all the hoops. Well, today, you don't have to jump through the hoops in order to do that. So it's not surprising to me both that we've seen kind of a drop-off uh, of demand, which then led to a spiral, which led to it making sense for them to shut the thing down. So it's sad in that it indicates that we're no longer in kind of this Wild West phase that we were for a very long time. But on the other hand, I have to say, I'm pretty happy to see us continuing past that. I think that this is the time, you know, uh, in the next couple of years, 10 maybe, where we start to see this stuff really matter. So end of an era for sure, but not sad about that at all. Will? Yeah, quick take, then I'll hand it over to Jen. I totally agree with you on this. And 
I don't want to get too far into like the introspection on the whole local Bitcoins topic because it is sad, right? Like it's frustrating that like a project like this has to close shop. But that's what happens when you see tech adoption. Uh, decentralized players, they're big now. It's really easy to onboard to Coinbase or to Binance or another centralized player. It's simpler in a lot of cases than using local Bitcoins or something like that. And then you don't have like a lot of the other risks that are associated with something like this. Local Bitcoins is great because basically allowed you to find another peer to trade Bitcoin for. USD or something else, you know, just swap Bitcoin for whatever. And you could do it locally, which is like a great part about this. There's some downsides to that as well, though, right? Like you're taking on security risk. Uh, there's always risk of like physical damage from somebody, those sort of things. In the US, local Bitcoins was not exactly a loved product, right? There's a lot of stories going back in Bitcoin's history where people were using local Bitcoins and then the feds tracked them down and said, hey, this is kind of like money laundering, except we're using this thing called local Bitcoins and we're not big fans of that. So to see a centralized players come in and squeeze them out on just on the volume terms, it really was a conclusion unto itself. Uh, this was going to happen at some point unless local Bitcoins was able to have some sort of new tech edge that came out and that didn't come to pass. Jen, over to you. Yeah, I agree with everything everyone has said. You know, 10 years is a lot older than most firms we come across in the space, right? And, you know, a few weeks ago, I was on this whole regenerative kick and this story brought me back to that, right? I think at the beginning of this bear market, SEC Commissioner Hester Peirce said, you know, the companies that aren't going to make it, we should allow them to not make it so that new companies can come in and solve these, all of these challenges and pain points that we're trying to solve so that we can get that mainstream adoption. And this is what I see here. I know it's the end of an era, but the team that's working on local Bitcoins and has been working on that for a really long time now has the opportunity to work on different things and bring other projects to life that are going to survive as we move into the future. So a bittersweet story for me, but Adam, I'll give it back to you for last thoughts. Yeah, I, I just want to pour one out metaphorically for all of the awkward conversations in coffee shops where you're sitting there waiting 10 minutes, 20 minutes, 30 minutes for that 10 minute average block time uh, to hit. So you get that one confirmation <laughs> where you can actually take the person's money <laughs> or the other way around. Because there were a lot of those in the early days and it wasn't a ton of fun, but it is interesting to think back to how simple things were at that time. Zach? All right, spicy take before we move gears. Did ordinals kill local Bitcoins? Is this <laughs> the passing of the torch <laughs> in terms of Bitcoin's usability and what will captivate users' interest going forward? I think maybe. I think maybe Bitcoin NFT protocol ordinals is what was the ultimate but death probably knell not. of the peer-to-peer marketplace. She just wanted this. to bring ordinals up. Makes the most that's sense. All that yeah, I know. Zach will yeah, take every exactly moment to bring ordinals <laughs> up. <laughs> gotta stay timely. Gotta stay timely, guys. Come on now. Come on now. Okay, I got all a different right, spicy take. Oh, okay, you got one? Okay. Well, one, one quick spicy take that actually tops yours, I think, and actually makes a little bit more sense if I can't say so. I think a lot of these like Bitcoin maximalist only products, this is the first one that's going to tip over and we might see more of these, right? Like these really crazy hardware wallets are so hard to use and nobody wants to use them. This was one of them, really, like local Bitcoins was for Bitcoiners. And this is going to be maybe the beginning of a lot of those products failing. I, I think we've moved into uh -oh. multi-chain thesis. Centralized players are bigger than ever. I don't know. That's my take. Zach. It leaves Paxful and that really jacked founder that we talked about not long ago <laughs> as the oh, remaining peer-to-peer Bitcoin marketplace. We'll see if Paxful can step up and pick up the slack. Anyway. Okay, let's turn over to Coinbase land. This was a very, very powerful tweet that went out last night from Brian Armstrong, the CEO and founder of Coinbase, saying that 
there are rumors floating around that the SEC may stamp down on top of retail staking. Staking, of course, uh, is used for proof-of-stake networks such as Ethereum. allows you to take coins, put them onto an address, and secure the network, and then earn a little bit of the native token in return for your uh, security you're bringing to the network. This is in turn to compared to mining, which is used for Bitcoin, where you're pointing a computer at the Bitcoin network and providing security by just basically using energy. Uh, staking, a lot of people think it's a lot like a security, and some people in the SEC might think that as well. Coinbase tweeted about this, or Brian Armstrong tweeted about this, and it's a pretty big uh, measure of uh, Coinbase's revenue. So this is like something that's actually very important to their, uh, their core business. I hope this doesn't happen, but this was kind of last night. It was like fire alarms going off for a lot of people. Were like, is this actually happening? Because Brian Armstrong wouldn't just like tweet that out of, out of the blue. Zach, up to you. Yeah, you love it when, when Brian Armstrong goes off the cuff and just tweets out you know, the things that they're hearing in the industry. You really do love to see it. It does get the conversation going pretty, uh, pretty quickly. Yeah, Will, you're right. I mean, if you look at the last earnings, it was something like 11% of all revenues were related to staking rewards, right? And these are things that make it easy for people to get rewards on the things that they already have in their Coinbase account, right? This is a way for people to get that yield that wrecked a lot of people with a lot of the centralized lending outfits that were out there. This is a bit technologically different. There's obviously less risk associated with it, but it is that sort of quote-unquote interest that people like to view uh, as being able to get with their crypto holdings that they wouldn't otherwise be able to do. Uh, so anyway, I think like the idea that this may run afoul of securities laws is something that has been discussed in the past. Uh, and if this does come to pass, I think that's obviously a bit disappointing for resale's ability to participate in securing some of these proof of stake networks. But hey, I don't know. It may just be a rumor. It may not come to pass. We'll see. Adam, I think I saw your hand. It's us to you. Yeah. So, I mean, let's just talk about what the SEC is nominally supposed to do. They're charged with protecting investors. And typically the way that they do that is they, they mandate companies that are registered with them to release certain types of information. The purpose of this is because in especially companies, you're talking about environments that have a lot of what's called information asymmetry, right? So the people who are running the company know a lot more about what's going on within the company, its future prospects, et cetera, than the people who are investing into the company. So that's what they're supposed to do. That's actually a good function. It makes it so that so long as everybody has all the information, then you, know, you can make correct decisions. At least you can make decisions with as much correctness or as much potential for correctness as anybody else. But it's important to note that the SEC doesn't require that investors read those materials that are released. They just require that they be released. So you, you take that argument and now you transpose it over to staking. What is staking? Staking is locking up your tokens in a way where nobody can spend them, including yourself, uh, to be part of consensus. And you're being part of consensus on an open, public, decentralized blockchain network, which means that inherently, <laughs> if you have access to the thing, so does everybody else because it's on the blockchain. They're transparent structures by default. So the idea that you could take the staking process and say, well, you're making money off of this, so therefore it has all the same challenges as investing in a company is a little bit stupid, honestly. And it's like, but, but it's consistent if you think about this, not from a perspective of protecting investors, which is nominally what they're supposed to do. And instead you think about it as a way to really on the one side to, to sort of protect the monopolies that exist out there, protect the existing market structure, which the SEC regulates, um, and then also to increase their power. Because if they don't actually need to have that investor protection part, well, then that means that this could apply to a lot more things, which means that they become more important, more powerful. It becomes more prestigious to be involved with this. 
And just in general, like if you're somebody who's going into the world of politics, uh, you know, even on the regulation side, a lot of times those are some of your objectives. So that, that was kind of the thing that jumped out at me about this is just that, okay, like let's assume good faith. Good faith assumptions mean that there's no way that they would want to do this because there are no information asymmetries to address. So that's my read on it. But uh, down to you, Jen. Yeah, I agree with you, Adam. And I, I think you've said this on the show before. I don't think it's that the SEC doesn't understand what's going on here. I think it's that they are threatened at the loss of power over what is happening. What's interesting to me, though, is an outright ban to me means that they lose power, right? If these products go overseas, set up offshore, the SEC uh, inevitably pushes it out of their jurisdiction and they're not able to oversee. I, I feel like they're losing a little bit of power there. And the fact that we see Brian Armstrong on Twitter telling us about what he's hearing, especially when it comes to regulation in the industry so often, tells me that the regulators are not willing to speak with the people who matter to actually make real regulation that can help move the industry forward happen. And that is such a frustrating thing that these CEOs have to go to Twitter and say what they're hearing and they're not able to speak to regulators, especially when the SEC says, you know, our doors are open, come and talk to us. I saw a few hands go up, I think Adam and Will, so I'll let you guys duke it out for last thoughts. You can have a Will. Yeah, last thought for me uh, is just the new article from Nick Carter that came out last night. And we kind of talked about this actually last week on the hash, or maybe it was earlier this week, and it was about Operation Choke Point. So the idea that the Biden administration and other government regulators are increasingly tightening down on the banking side of crypto in order to take the oxygen out of the room from all these different crypto projects. If you put your thumb on the banks that are providing liquidity to crypto projects, well, then the crypto projects die. And this seems to be possibly another arm of this, right? Like right, right now, it's a lot of speculation. It's a lot of like putting headlines together and saying like, this works with this, and maybe there's something going on nefarious. But this one sort of does work within that framework, right? Like they, they missed the ball on FTX. And now they're going after Ethereum, even though it's transitioned to proof of stake, it's had great uptime, there hasn't been any issues. It all seems a little odd. Adam, to you. I mean, whether you're talking about DAOs, whether you're talking about stable coins, whether you're talking about tokenized, really anything, uh, what you're talking about are structures that threaten the monopolies that are held by people in power today uh, of the system. And, you know, that means that the regulators on one side. So, so Jen, to your point, I think that there's a bigger game that's being played here. There's power at the regulator. That matters a lot. They're trying to maximize it and they're trying to do it in a way that doesn't require them to pass any new rules. Because were they to pass new rules, then they would actually have to get comment from the industry. There would be, there's like this whole involved process that is designed to make it so that the regulators don't just make any rule that they want, but they make a rule that is actually the one that makes sense based on what the industry needs. They don't want to do that because again, once you open that can of worms, they have to actually justify why this is the correct path. Whereas if they just say, oh, this is all the same thing as it was 100 years ago, then they, don't, they have to make no new rules. All they get to do is just claim to expanded sort of authority there. But, but think about it for a second. Again, these are tokens that don't require a listing on the New York Stock Exchange. These are tokens that trade globally. These are tokens that really have no way outside of, you know, uh, uh, Prime Minister Modi over in India getting his way and getting some type of top-down you know, regulations that apply to literally every country in the world so you cannot escape. Like, this is terrifying to people who really only have these jobs and have these powers because they exert such incredible monopoly, you know, control over these areas. So I think that it's more that than anything else. Sure, in the short term, they lose some power, uh, you know, if things go overseas. 
But in the long term, they stall for just that little bit longer and they get to retain their power and relevance for just that little bit longer. And I got to tell you, I think that that's what's going on here at the core. Next up, top stablecoin issuer Tether reports that they've made about $700 million in profit from running the world's largest stablecoin in just the fourth quarter of last year. It's a reminder why we've seen and are likely to continue to see more and more players launching their own versions of some kind of stablecoin, hoping to find similar successes. And that's because the business model behind stablecoins is the stuff that dreams are made of. You give Tether dollars, they give you tokens that can be redeemed for dollars, but which pay no interest and which usually aren't redeemed. But issuers don't typically just keep that money in the bank. Instead, they invest it into supposedly safe assets like U.S. Treasuries. Early last year, with interest rates held at record lows and more than $60 billion in reserves, that gave them a healthy but modest return. But as the year has gone on, and as the Fed has raised the cost of borrowing money dramatically, uh, it's a whole other situation today. Three-month duration U.S. Treasuries are currently paying 4.7% annualized yield, according to Bloomberg this morning. I'll let you guys do the math, but it's a lot. Zach, we've been watching this story for a very long time. What's your take on the latest? Yeah, I think Tether's trying to project strength. And if these numbers are indeed accurate, they're looking pretty strong, right? They weathered the worst of this storm, the crypto contagion. I think there was some speculation in the market as to whether or not one of the big stablecoin issuers would crumble under the pressure of FTX-related crypto contagion. As yet, that has not happened. Tether is out here projecting strength. Circle seems to be also processing redemptions quite nicely. Paxos even processing redemptions for BUSD, which it partially administers, also holding strong. So I think um, the resilience, I think, of the stablecoin sector, the centralized stablecoins, I should specify, has been sort of heartening to see. I think in the depths of the craziness in November, December, there was definitely people worried about whether or not these were the next shoes to fall. And so far, that has not come to pass. Whether or not um, that will happen one day is really, uh, time will only tell. But if they can uh, go through this crunch over the last few months and still come out looking pretty good financially, again, assuming these numbers and these attestations are correct and accurate, then things uh, are looking pretty good from the biggest uh, stablecoin issuers in the world. Well, it's us to you for your thoughts. Yeah, Tether, baby. Everyone wants to be a bank. And uh, why not with numbers like this? It's great stuff, right? $700 million in revenue is nothing to smirk at at all. And that's why you see so many of these different stablecoin projects boot up. Just this morning on Coindesk, we saw that Aave is launching their own stablecoin, GHO. It's going to be a decentralized stablecoin, so the dynamics are a little bit different. But at the same time, you also make some money. And normally that money does flow into some people's pockets at the end of the day, even if it is a DAO. And so I think this just brings me back to last year, right, with the Terra Luna debacle. Why did that happen? Well, people wanted a decentralized stablecoin. That really is the dream of crypto. Bitcoin is great, but what if we had decentralized money that maintained its value? So people are chasing after Tether seems to be the only long-term bet on that. And the only reason it's decentralized is because it has its bank offshore, off the United States' uh, guidance, right? So I think that's the thing to really watch here is to see if people look at these numbers and they're like, let's boot up Terra Luna 2.0. Let's print more money, baby. Let's keep this thing rocking and rolling. I don't know if that's going to happen again until we have another bull run, but it's definitely like a, a profitable business line. Jen, to you. Yeah, yesterday we spoke about Binance, who really suffered at the hands of regulators over the year, but seemed to have really made it on top. They're forming coalitions, they're doing the thing for the industry. For me, Tether is a nice parallel to that story. Tether was really under a lot of regulatory scrutiny for a long time, and people weren't sure what was going to happen with Tether. And here we have them doing what they say they're going to do and coming out on top, despite all of the contagion that's happening in the rest 
of the industry, assuming that their numbers are correct. I think this is great. They set targets out last year to get rid of some of these short-term papers. They set target, they set a bunch of targets out last year, and it looks like they're tracking towards those. So I love to see it in an industry that sets a lot of milestones and targets and very few projects actually deliver on those. Will, I'll kick it back to you. Yeah, one more thought on this before we go to the next topic with you, Jen. Uh, one fact check, I said revenue is actually 700 million in profit. But the thing with stablecoins that's really interesting is that they're like anti-cyclical and they're pro-cyclical, right? So like during a market, they do really well. Like during a bull market, like everyone's using them, a lot of outstanding tether, like the market cap grows. But then during a bear market, like you said, Adam, like cost of money goes up. And so they just print more money because they have on the backside, these US treasuries that are paying them interest. So it's a weird business model. It's kind of really the honey badger of crypto in a way. Like this thing will not go away because it always makes money somehow. Back to you, Adam. Yeah, I think that that's a great place to kind of end on here. You know, when we're talking about the different types of stable coins, there are a lot of different incentive mixes that you find out there. The, you know, the ones that have been getting in trouble over the last, I mean, really since the beginning <laughs> are the, are the ones that are algorithmic, typically pegged to tokens, sometimes under collateralized, usually poorly collateralized. The better collateralized ones tend to survive. And they're the incentive, like there's, there's no reserves that are being held by the company. And so their incentive is to maximize use, but not really in the same way that Tether has going on. A company like Tether, a company like, you know, Circles USDC, anybody whose business model actually involves them issuing a token, but holding the cash themselves. Again, like they basically get to print money for themselves using other people's money, and that's okay. So they would have to go into like hyper greed mode, right? Where it's like, I'm not making enough money, you know, $900 million isn't enough here. Instead, I need to start investing money, you know, in risky ways. And I think that we've actually seen that as, as time has gone on over the course of the last couple of years, and as more transparency and competition has come into this market, the centralized players have actually cleaned up their mix a lot. Now, whether you trust U.S. Treasuries over the long term as something that is a, a riskless return, different question. But at least based on kind of the reality that we live in today and how the mainstream looks at it, these just look like they're the version that makes sense, even if people would like to not have to rely on one of these companies. At least the incentive mix seems to be right. But moving on, Jen. All right, let's talk about the latest banking report to comment on this industry. So the Bank of America released a research report on Wednesday that says DeFi's current functionality barely scratches the surface. In the long term, the bank says it expects the development of DeFi applications with real-world functionality to increase the efficiency of traditional financial products and services, and it anticipates that the applications will evolve by optimizing the trade-offs between user incentives and risks. A lot going on with the banks and crypto. I wanted to bring this to the forefront because Bank of America seems to be more positive about DeFi, which is a stark difference from what we've seen um, in recent days. Will, I'm going to kick this one off to you. I know you love to comment on a good bank report. <laughs> Just tempting me, Jen. You're just tempting me. I mean, I agree with them, so I can't slam them this time, right? But any other bank report, I'd be happy to do that. The thing with these banking reports is like, I don't like them because there's just a lot of information we see circulating around Twitter or just on your favorite website, coindesk.com. You can know all this stuff pretty easily, but they package it up, put into a banking report, they send it off to all their subscribers, and they make some money, right? They make six figures doing this. It's a job. It's a thing you can do, even though it's really not that helpful at the end of the day. Though... Bank of America, that stamp of approval, it does bring in the institutions, perhaps. It does bring in more money with deeper pockets. So I guess there is that side to it. On to like the, the actual content here. 
I agree with all of it. Like DeFi has a lot of motivation behind it. Like there's a lot of reasons to use it. It just needs some more work. And that's why we're in a bear market. We're biddling. Adam. Yeah, I think that it's important when you're looking at these types of things to think about the different types of audiences these reports are intended to serve. I think on the one side, when you're talking about something like a Bank of America report, you've got the regulators who, again, these banks rely on, partner very closely with, uh, you know, and who both, you know, regulate them and also create a pretty meaningful moat around them. Because if you want to compete with Bank of America, you have to go through the same regulatory hoops as everybody else. So there's, there's that audience. And for that audience, you want to indicate that you're a very serious bank that is watching these things, but doesn't really think it's going to threaten anything that, that could come into conflict with the regulator. On the other side, you've got shareholders. <laughs> and shareholders are looking at this and saying, hey, this looks like it's going to obsolete you. Don't you need to care about this? And so to those people, they say, yeah, we definitely care about this. It's not ready yet. Don't, don't bother us about it. We don't need to create any products for it. But yeah, we're paying close attention because we're very serious people who are here to earn you a return on your investment. So <laughs> whenever I look at these again, like it's just important to think about that. Like who is this being written for? Because as you said, Will, it's not like this is hard information to find. This is information that's being packaged in very specific ways for uh, a couple of conflicting audiences. Uh, let's see, Zach, I think you've got the last word on this one. Sure, I'll take it. We talked about Spare Bank, Saber Bank, Spare Bank, the Russian one the other day. And we talked about how, yeah, that thing that you just mentioned, right? The desire to resist the moment at which you are made obsolete by new technologies, right? Is DeFi going to do that and upend the entire banking system? No, probably not. Is it a cool option to have for people who are crypto native at this point in time? Yes. Could it be something that more consumers use in some way through the auspices of their bank? Also, yes. So Bank of America, to its credit, is at least thinking through this thing the way other banks have over the last few years, whether it's Societe General working with, with, uh, with MakerDAO uh, or what have you, right? There are ways that people within banks are thinking about how do we take the best of these decentralized technologies so that we can serve our customers better? And this is obviously that advancement. But yeah, we do need to make the bank report breakdown like with the sound effects like and like mm-hmm. do the wipe and then toss to Will. That's it. All right, that's the show for today. I got to wrap this thing. I'm Zach Seward. That's Adam. We got Jen. We got Will. We got the beat. We got three seconds. We'll see you tomorrow. Bye. You've been listening to The Hash on the Coindesk Podcast Network. We would like to hear from you. So if you have any questions or comments, please reach out to us at podcasts at coindesk.com, subject line, The Hash, or leave us a review on your favorite podcast player. Thanks for listening. One, two, three, four. Those are numbers, but you already knew that. If you want to know what number you're going to pay each month for your car, use Kelly Blue Book My Wallet on AutoTrader. They're really good at numbers. AutoTrader.